This is Pragmatic, a weekly discussion show contemplating the practical application of technology. Exploring the real-world trade-offs, we look at how great ideas are transformed into products and services that can change our lives. Nothing is as simple as it seems. I'm Ben Alexander, and my co-host is John Chigi. Hey, John, how are you doing? I'm very well, thank you, Ben. How are you doing? I'm doing well. It's a beautiful Ohio morning. Well, it's... um. Yes, I'd say it's a lovely summer evening here, but uh, in any case, um, okay, I'd like to start by um, saying some thank yous to uh, several people that have said some very nice things about uh, the, the show so far. Um, I apologize if I mispronounce your name. Um, Jamie Ryan, of course, I have that name down pat. Thank you, Jamie. Uh, Diego Petrucci, I think it is. Thank you very much. And also uh, Brad Fortin, I think it is. And an extra special thank you to Mike Owertley, I think it is, Owertley, so sorry if I mangled that. Uh, and he wrote a lovely piece uh, on his blog about uh, about the show on his site. And uh, that site, if you're curious, it has some interesting stuff there, is uh, opte.ch. So imagine optech, but with a dot uh, separating the ch at the end. Um, all of the downloads that we've been getting have really um put a put pragmatic uh, essentially higher up in in the iTunes charts than I actually thought would would uh would happen early days but uh we're currently sitting number 1 top podcast in technology gadgets and number 5 in top podcast for technology um they're also showing us on the front page as well when you first log in and look at any podcasts as uh, new and noteworthy so uh, thank you to everybody who has downloaded the show and who has listened to it. We really appreciate it. And um, thank you so much. If you feel like leaving a review, feel free. But uh, in any case, I just wanted to say thank you before we got started. Yeah, I, same here. It's uh, It's been a wild uh, past couple of days here. Yeah, it has been. And without further ado, on to the main topic for this episode. And the main topic for this episode is automation. So automation is essentially going really simplistic here. You want to be able to free up people from performing certain tasks. The purpose of automation is that you can get a machine to do it. You can build a machine to take over a manual task. So there's really two pieces you've got to break it down into. You've got to break it down into the devices that actuate and that is to say they, they move and manipulate the real world. And then you've got the controller. So need to talk about them sort of separately and a little bit of a history lesson as well, just, just to sort of get everyone's head in the right space. So first of all, I think in terms of digital controls and and so on and digital communications, the, the simplest, most fundamental controlling device is actually a relay. And I'm not talking about a relay race, of course, no. I'm talking about a relay. And a relay, <laughs> I'm just trying to think how you describe a relay. It's essentially an electromagnet. So when you run current through a coil, it creates a magnetic field. And you do all of those coils in the same direction, bunch them all up together, you get a stronger magnetic field. So if you've got a ferrous material, that's uh, ferromagnetic, I should say, material and what you can then do is you can run a current through the coil and it can physically 
move uh, a switch. Same concept behind a solenoid. Essentially, a relay is a solenoid. But where a relay is different is that the thing it's switching is in itself another switch. You know, like a light switch, but without the physical button on it. So it can turn things on and off. So, for example, you'll have a common connection and you'll have a normally open and a normally closed connection. And when you throw the relay, you power the relay up, it'll switch from one to the other. So in its non-energized state, there's no current flowing through the coil. The magnetic field doesn't exist. The spring loading will return the relay to its normal position. So if it's a normally open relay, normally open contact, then it'll go from com the, the connection will be from the common wire across to the normally open. Once you drive current through the coil, it will it will pull that towards the coil and that will close it to the normally closed contact. And that essentially is is a relay. And the point of a relay is that you separate two circuits. So on the one side, on the coil side, you could have whatever voltage you wanted, 24, 12 volts, 6 volts, 240 volts, 110 volts, doesn't matter. AC coil, DC coil, different, you know, different sort of subtly different design, but doesn't matter. We talked about power also in episode two. So the point is that whatever you got on, on the input side, on the coil side, you can have whatever you want on the other side of it, on the actual side you're switching. So you can literally use a switch, use a relay to convert a signal from 24 volts DC up to 1,000 volts AC if you wanted to. And that idea, it, it, if it's not perhaps immediately obvious, but it was actually invented. Uh, and well, there, You know how things sometimes are invented at approximately the same time in history? Right. And especially when you go back beyond the time at which we had, I guess what you, I guess maybe very, very fast, ubiquitous communication. So right now, if I hit send on an email and you hit send on an email, they'll have a timestamp on it. It'll be relative to UTC and you'll be able to tell exactly who sent what first, the path it took and all that information. Okay, obviously that was not always the case. So you go back to the Wright brothers and there's an argument over who invented the first powered uh, airplane. And then you go back to who invented the first car. And back in those days where communication was not like that at all, you'd hear a story, oh, some guy in some other country you probably haven't heard of or certainly haven't been to invented something just like what you did. Well, so was the case with the damn relay. So the two guys is Joseph Henry or Edward Davy. So they both had, they both claimed to have invented the relay in 1835. But in the end, you know, hey, does it really matter? Someone invented the relay and it was a great idea. It was originally developed and employed at great length, I would say, in the 1840s, which is the dawn of Morse code telegraph. So essentially what this did was it allowed someone at one end using a very low voltage to basically set, uh, press down a key and that would close a circuit. That would drive a relay much higher voltage and that high voltage would travel along the telegraph lines. On the other end, it would do the reverse process. It would step that high voltage down to a lower voltage. There'd be booster stations along the way that had interposing relays to give it a kick as it went along. And that essentially was the main driving, or I suppose it was one of those things. I'm. It's not, history does not, illustrate conclusively which came first 
But I imagine that it was more that the relay's popularity, uh, it was used in the telegraph for Morse code for communication over long distances. And that drove the fast adoption and recognition of what how useful the relay was. Funny thing about relays, though, is that they really haven't changed a hell of a lot <laughs> since then. Uh, they really haven't. But they are the fundamental building block of most of the control systems. And even today, relays are present in pretty much every control system that you would care to look at. Sometimes you can't see them. They're embedded in the equipment. Other times, you know, they're a separate item that you can literally pull out a, a, blow, a one that's bust, busted and replace it. Okay, so that's relays. Uh, there's a couple of good links uh, in, the, uh, in the show notes. I encourage you to look at them if you want to know more about the history of the relay. So we're going to fast forward now. Uh, so that's enough about relays. Uh, just a little footnote, the transistor was invented in 1947. And of course, the transistor is a silicon version of that, where a very low voltage or current can modulate a much larger voltage or current. But it does it without physically moving contacts. So the problem with relays is, of course, that they're a mechanical device. So the magnetic field isn't mechanical, but because you're opening and closing the contacts, that creates a problem. And there's all sorts of problems with that, and I don't want to go into the details, but the bottom line is if it moves, it will break. So one of the things that in when you do reliability engineering, you realize that anything that has a connector, anything that moves or can move, uh, will inevitably fail before the things that don't. So if I solder, sorry, a North American expression, if I solder... <laughs> A device onto it. I mean, yes, I'm sorry. I have to point that out. When I first went to work in, in uh, North America and I said solder, they looked at me like I was like, what are you talking about? <laughs> I pointed at the wave soldering machine and they said, oh, you mean solder? And I'm like, um, yes, I mean solder. Sorry. Yeah, that's a weird one. I know. Anyway, I don't get that. The L disappears because it's spelt the same way. Anyway, all right. Back on topic. So... When you solder a component down onto a board, it is going to be far more reliable than something that sits in a socket. You know, and anyone that's built their own PC, you know, you go back for the longest time possible. What's been happening is a rationalization of these components. They've gone from being socketized to all-in-one motherboards to the point at which these days where you buy a motherboard for a PC, yeah, it's got a couple of expansion slots like PCI Express slots on or whatever. And... Yeah, you don't have to put anything in it because the graphics card's on board and everything else is on board and CPU's the only thing really in a socket. And that socket's gone away from pins. It's gone to high to pressure pressure contact onto a onto a flat bit of copper. So yeah, a lot of that movement is sort of taken up. Whereas in the old days it was a pin alignment issue and everything. So uh, moving parts anyway in the relay. I'm getting sidetracked. The moving parts in the relay are bad. So this, the transistor is significant because what it means is that you didn't have moving parts anymore. So that didn't start to have much of a dent on control systems until we get to about to the mid-60s. But it's still important to note. Okay. So analog controls. I don't really want to go into too much depth on analog controls other than to state that they existed and some of them are still around. And what it, what essentially analog controls are is operational amplifiers are, hmm, I don't know how deep to go on this one. 
have a look in the notes if you want to know more about it. But essentially, what you can do is consider a an amplifier, an analog amplifier that will amplify anything that you give it into it in, vo- in voltage from, say, 0 to 10. It'll output in linear response to that based on the gain that you set, and you can set the gain using different resistances. So the idea was that you had a whole con- bunch of these operational amplifiers and you would literally wire between them the resistances you wanted to quote-unquote program the controller. And all of the control parameters, you would go through all the mathematics and you know do all of your Laplace transforms and figure out exactly how much gain you needed in order to control what you were trying to control. And analog controllers, for example, uh, would drive something like a PID controller. And that's all I want to say about analog controllers because PID controllers is really one of the big things in controls engineering. PID stands for proportional integral uh, derivative. And what essentially a PID controller does is let's say you're trying to control the flow through a pipe. And for whatever reason, there's a bunch of mechanical reasons I won't go into where you have to control that to, I don't know, 30 litres a second. You've got a pump on one end and you've got a water source and you've got to pump this up a hill. You can't exceed 30 litres a second. So you put a device along there to measure the flow, a flow meter, doesn't matter what kind, just a flow meter. And it says, okay, I'm now getting 29 litres a second. So what do you do? You run that through, that's your process variable from the field. You run the process variable back into a PID controller and you give it your set point. And the set point is 30 litres a second. It measures the difference between them and that is the error. And then based on the gain, integral and um, derivative times, it will then attempt to close that error by the output. And the output drives the speed of the pump. So the idea is that you modulate your speed of the pump up and down until you reach the desired flow rate. If that all sort of made sense, then PID controllers through are extremely valuable because that's one example. Another example that I could think of, certainly back in the day when it was being developed, was positioning controls. So let's say you're on a battleship. And the reason I wanted to bring this one up is because I a few years ago I saw what was the name of the movie where um, these aliens came came down to Earth and they had to get this old battleship out. They were all stuck in some kind of a big energy thing. I think it was just called Battleship, wasn't it? What, yeah, it was know. based on the, the, the board game, wasn't it? So, I don't know, something like that. But the, the point is that they got this old uh, – it was set around Hawaii and they got this old battleship from the 40s or 50s out and it had all of this uh, – all the different – Oh, the old style controllers in there for positioning the gun turrets and the elevations and everything. And I was looking at that thing and inside me, I'm like, oh, that looks so cool because that's all the stuff, of course, that doesn't exist anymore. It's all been mothballed and doesn't, you know, we've all gone to digital control and all that analog stuff is all gone. But things like positioning controllers and all this sort of, you know, feedback and everything used to be handled with analog controllers and analog electronics. But Everything's all gone digital because digital is so much better in a lot of ways. But at the same time, it's a hell of a lot more complicated. So just another you know, silly example. I haven't worked on a battleship of that age, but 
you know, looking at the controls on that and doing a little bit of reading about it. Yeah, it's some, a lot of similar concepts. So it's all about you've got a variable that you're trying to control. You have a means by which you can affect that control. Uh, so by, by affecting that value and the PID controller allows you to set a set point and control it without having to keep your eye on it. Because, of course, before analog controllers, they used to have somebody that did that. So what they would do is they would sit there with the, the speed control on the pump on, and they would simply say faster, slower. And they would say faster, they'd wait a minute, and they'd see the flow feedback coming back. Oh, it's about 29.5 litres a second. Okay, I'm a little bit faster. So it was all manually done, right? But this allowed people to get a external, well, essentially a mini sort of computer to do this, customised specifically, though, for that task. So that was just briefly analog controls. And they're very popular in the 50s and 60s. And all of those machines are more or less gone now. They're just not in use anymore. I think that they still had one at the university when I was there just for teaching purposes when we were doing operational amplifiers and you know control system theory. But we never even used it. It was like, oh, yeah, that's an old analog controller. And we're like, oh, okay, that looks quaint. Lovely. Next. So anyway, it was the uh, it was the USS Missouri, with the ah uh, oh, thank you yes and th which was where um, uh, General MacArthur and Japanese Foreign Minister Mamoru Shigemitsu uh, signed the the surrender for World War Two yeah but um, yeah that's it and it's a cool looking boat oh absolutely oh yeah I mean I'm. Not not much into the like the military gear, but I can appreciate a, a nice looking boat like that. So that was just yeah, I don't know. It it mm, it's very cool. Anyhow, okay. So the next thing the next thing that was happening at the same time was people were exploring experimenting more with relays in terms of control. So what they were starting to do is they were starting to add things like timers and time delays into relays. So instead of just saying, I run a current through the coil, the coil pulls in the contacts and away we go. We've switched our current through from one to the other and it's going to do whatever it's going to do. Well, they started putting time delays in them. So you would, when you put the actual power on to the coil, it would then have a time delay that you could configure. It could be a second, hard, two seconds, 10 seconds, whatever you wanted. And, of course, they then started developing ones that did the reverse, which is once you take the power off, that it continues to maintain that contact for a certain amount of time before it releases the contacts. And they would call those on-delay and off-delay timers. So with a combination of on- and off-delay timers and standard relays, you could start to actually build a panel with push buttons, indicator lights, that could start to do basic digital control. How... Exactly that works. It's very hard for me to describe. I've thought very hard about how I would describe it just using words because this is a this is not a visual podcast, uh, not a what is the what is the right name for that? A video cast, a, a vlog. I don't know what a vlog. Yeah, something like that. <laughs> it's this that is not what this is. Podcast. Podcast. Yeah. Okay, so I I don't. I, it's really hard for me to do it without drawing something or showing you something. So please have a look in the note in the show notes. There are, there are a few good links in there. I, I'm strongly encourage you to have a look at those in your spare time to sort of give you an idea of how it would work. But the basic concept 
if I can, I'll try and paint this single very simple idea of a latching circuit and then I'll move on. Consider you have a push button and that push button essentially turns on the electricity. It, it starts at, from the source voltage or whatever the voltage is. So it's 24 volts DC. And I keep saying 24 volts DC. Just if you're curious, 24 volts DC has become the de facto industry standard for automation systems, in certainly in industrially. In telemetry systems, it's typically 12 volts because 12 volts is a standard car battery voltage. And, you know, 12 volt cells are typically used to back up for solar systems. So that's one of the reasons why 12 volts is predominant in telemetry systems that are, don't generally have a connection to the grid. But when it comes to industrial, it's 24 volts, which is not, not coincidentally twice uh, the 12 volts. Anyway, bottom line, I keep talking about 24 volts. So let's just assume it's all 24 volts DC, which is pretty well standard in industry these days. You push the button, 24 volts gets to the next part of the circuit, which drives a relay. The thing is that those relays can have more than one set of contacts. So rather than just pulling one switch, you could pull two or three or four. So that's when they we start talking about single pole relays, double pole relays, and you know, quad, quad pole relays. Three poles exist, but they're pretty uncommon. It's usually one, two, or four, or even eight, actually. Anyhow, so what we do is we will then run back to the start button and we'll say, you know what, once you've pushed that button and closed the relay, I'm going to feed back one of the outputs back into the input. And what that's going to do is that's going to keep the current flowing. So once I take my finger off the push button, the relay stays energized. And that's what they call a latch. So the circuit will then latch in and it will stay latched. And if you want to stop it, you have a stop button and the stop button is normally closed, which means it'll it'll the circuit will be complete if you don't touch it. And if someone says, oops, I've got to stop this machine, I'm going to push the stop button, that'll break the circuit. Once the voltage disappears, the feedback disappears, which means the relay drops out. Hey, presto, you've got to start the stop system. It's pretty simple when I draw it. It's real hard to explain that using words. So that's the best I could do. I hope that's okay. No, I got it. Makes sense. So the idea is now picture a plant that's got dozens or hundreds even of drives in it, motors, because, of course, the relay can drive big, big relays. And the big relays, they call them contactors. And a contactor can sink 20, 30 amps of current. And that'll drive big electric motors to turn whatever it needs to turn, or make, make conveyor belts move, or whatever the hell they're doing. Um, start and stop the air conditioning. You know, it could be anything. The point is that you end up with these massive, big cubicles full of relays. And you'd close the door, and on the, bunch, be a whole, on the front, there'd be a bunch of buttons. And they'd all be labeled and that was your control system, was just an, an enormous cubicle full of relays. And I remember I saw one of these in operation at a, when I was working at uh, one of my previous companies. I was doing some service work with uh, one of the companies that moved their facility up from Melbourne to Brisbane for tax reasons. So the Queensland government was giving them tax breaks and all that you know, sort of thing that, you know, they're trying to attract business. Yeah, sometimes cities temporarily go insane and do that sort of thing. <laughs> and then they jack the prices up later and, you know, ha, ah, you moved, too late now sort of thing happens and it's all very nasty. But anyway, I was listening to the panel, the relay panel, because the funny thing was we had a PLC and running the re PLCs running the rest of the equipment, but the old duct work in the top, all the switching of the duct work was all done using relays and these relay panels that were built in the 60s. And I was, and I put my ear up to the cabinet, and I listened to this this song of all these relays going click 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 
click, 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 click. And I'm like, um, that is just the most bizarre sound. <laughs> like to this day, it's imprinted in my brain. It's just the most unusual thing because PLCs generally don't do that. The lights will flash on and off, but that's okay. You're not f- flicking relays every two, three relays a second. Because like I said, it's a problem, right? Because relays are a mechanical item and they will right. wear out. You you buy a relay, it lasts for, you know, 100,000 operations. Once those 100,000 operations are up, you're on your own. I mean, this thing might just stop actuating. It might you might get uh, uh, the, one of the common failure mechanisms for relays is uh, welded contacts or carbonized contacts. In other words, it's either always making a connection, no matter if you turn it off, or it'll never make a connection even if you turn it on, in which case, you know, Right. You got to chuck it out, put a new one in. Well, and I'm sure it's, you know, if you're if you're building a, a a plant or you're building a, you know, a relay room, right? Then you've got your your there might be rated 100,000, but who knows, you get the bad one and click 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 ding, right? It's just <laughs> yep. And I assume I'm assuming that where that really becomes a problem is dealing with you know, if something's if something's relatively slow, you're not going to have as much heat and and pressure building up. But um, or you know, as many as many uh, you know, fractures or, or tears in the material. But once you get to something really maybe you know computationally intensive, it's going to start. Uh, yeah, absolutely. It's going to yeah, run yeah, away yeah. on you. Yep, spot on. Exactly right. And the high temperature environments kill them. And the uh, and it's yeah, it's it's the number of operations that that, that will kill it the quickest. But uh, obviously, if you're switching a relay ten times a second, and it's not going to last a year, you know, and it's just it's bad design. If that's what you've got to do with your control system, even with a PLC, you've done something wrong. You know, it, there's 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 a better way of doing it. There's another way of doing it. It's it's been done wrong. Relays aren't meant to be operated like that. So anyway, okay. Here we are in the 60s. We've got some analog controllers we're going to do some PID control with. We've got all these relays for all the digital control we need to do. And then, of course, the transistor's now being developed to a point at which you can now have essentially mini computers. Oh, yeah, I had supercomputers. They called them supercomputers. Oh, God. Uh, multiple room, bunches of tape drives. And ugh, anyway, never mind that. But the point I'm getting at is that silicon had started to come of age. So in the 60s, late 60s, it was 1968. There was essentially a group of companies that got together to try and solve this problem. And Bedford Associates, who was actually formed from uh, a bunch of companies of Morley, Greenberg, uh, actually, these are founding members, I believe Morley, Greenberg, Landau, Schwenk, and oh goodness, Boisevain. I probably messed that one up as well, mangled, apologies. And they essentially formed Bedford Associates. And Bedford Associates came up with a design that they called the Modicon, which was short, which is an abbreviation for Modular Digital Controller. And the model number was 084. And the Modicon PLC is the essentially considered to be the first PLC. And a PLC is a programmable logic controller. And the whole point of a PLC, at least back at that point, was to get rid of the relays. It was to get to get rid of all the times and all that and to program it. So rather than actually, because if you wanted to program, you know, a production line and all that back in those days in the 60s, you, you'd have to insert relays here, bypass relays there, mess with timers, you know, and so on. 
all these sorts of electrical wires that run everywhere. One thing I didn't mention is I opened up that relay panel and had a look inside and it was just a dog's breakfast of wires running everywhere between thousands of relays. And I just looked at it and shook my head. I'm like, how could anyone understand this? And you know, one of the older guys who'd actually brought this up from Melbourne had looked and he said, oh, yeah, well, this relay's doing that, one's doing that, and that one's doing that. And I'm just like, what? Yeah, uh, did, didn't, how they, do you- <laughs> didn't they used to use relays to, to store memory as memory in, in early yeah. computers? And well, was- essentially, yeah. I mean, essentially, when I described the a latching circuit, a latching circuit is memory. So right. a, a, a series of latched circuits, you could create a NAND gate, you could create... Uh, and from a NAND gate, you could create any form of gate, you know, mm-hmm. so like and or not NAND, blah, blah, blah. The, you know, the point is that, yeah, it, they, you're right, they did. And thank goodness they came up with a PLC because suddenly it was possible with a form of software for you to programmatically change what the system would do. So you could change the time delays. You could just you could add a time delay where there, was one, where was, there wasn't one before just by adding an extra line of code. And that was a massive breakthrough. And the first industry to truly take that up was the automotive industry. So, because they had big production lines and they were like, okay, we need to automate whatever we need to automate, like the assembly of this section, spray booths, I don't know, whatever they were automating, conveyor systems. But they they were the first to really embrace the PLC. And the great thing about it was that there was this, in the next 10 years, there was a massive, let's all build a PLC. This is a fantastic idea. So there were hundreds and hundreds of PLCs that were, were brought to market in the next decade and maybe the next two decades. And of course, guess what? They were all totally different, different software, different ways of programming them, different languages, different everything. But the one thing that they did keep the one thing <laughs> that still stands today is a common programming language that they call ladder logic. And the first time I saw ladder logic, it's sometimes called relay logic, but the first time I saw ladder logic, I sort of thought to myself, this is the most bizarre way of writing. Why? What? <laughs> and the, the name comes from the fact that if you were to draw the relays, they had an abbreviated way of drawing the relays in these old relay control panels. And that relay logic diagram, if you drew a line connecting all of the coils on the right-hand side and all of the source voltages on the left-hand side and with all of the relay con- contacts in between, it looked like rungs on a ladder. Like you, you know, your, your logic literally looked like the rungs on a ladder that you would climb up to yeah. get into your gutters and your roof. And they called it ladder logic. And the name stuck. So the monocons evolved and a whole bunch of other competitors did too but they all supported ladder logic and initially of course it was very crude the 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 descriptions for it how you would program was terrible the great news was while all this was happening computers were happening as well so plc's really they are like a microcontroller a microcomputer but they're not they don't have a keyboard they don't have a mouse they don't have a monitor all they care about is input turns on what do I do with it? I wait 10 seconds and turn the output on or something like that. So as time went on and computers developed, the, the the software you could use to program them got better and better again to the point at which it was 
it became visual. So you could literally drag and drop. So you want this, oh, I want a contact here, I want a coil there, I want a time delay block there. You just drag it in, drag and drop, drag and drop, and you draw lines using the mouse. And that's sort of essentially where it's been for the last maybe 15, 20 years. It's all become a visual, well, on the good PLCs anyway. Um, the, the more expensive ones, yeah, they've got decent software packages because now everyone had computers and computers could be were, were easily accessible because when PLCs first came out, it was all custom everything, custom controllers, custom programmers, custom everything, whereas it had to die. It couldn't go on like that. So as with a lot of industries, there's when there's an innovation, suddenly everyone wants in. So every, every man is dog and... Well, God, that's, uh, funny I say that. It sounds really um, gender biased when I say that. How about I just say everybody, everybody wants to have a PLC. It's like, oh, I can make a PLC better than everyone else. Um, it kind of makes me think a little about like smartphones with touchscreens and, and smartwatches. It's like, oh, smartwatches, they're going to be the next big thing. Suddenly, there's all these companies working on smartwatches. But the funny thing is that it's not always the first one to market that actually has the best product and i you don't need you need no more evidence than just looking at what apple did with the iphone as proof of that they weren't the first smartphone in the world no of course they weren't they were late. Whole bunch they, other were people, they were very they were they were very when it very came out, the the idea was i mean the the narrative was that they they were they were too late right it had, it had formed up yeah that's right not not true because they had a superior product and similar thing has happened in the PLC industry. So PLC started out with so many manufacturers. The first one was Bedford Associates with Modicon and the Modicon PLCs changed hands a lot of times. And now they're owned by a company called Schneider Electric. So the three big names and the biggest in the world in control systems is Siemens. The next one after that is a company that these days they call themselves Rockwell Automation. Most people, however, recognize Rockwell not by that name, but by the name of the company that they acquired, uh, Alan Bradley. So Alan Bradley is an American company that did a lot of work early on. And Modicon was eventually went over to Europe and was developed further in Europe and now is owned by a French company. And Siemens has always been Siemens. The The gear that they've used, the most popular PLCs that they have, the well, their current range they call them the S7, so the S7 300s and 400 PLCs, they are all have always been developed. They were based on the S5 before it, and you know, before that, I'm, yeah. Anyway, the point is that it's always been a German product by a German company, and they started out essentially uh, later to the game by several years, but they've come out as being the most popular PLC in the world. And there's a whole bunch of reasons for that, but in any case, those are your three front runners these days. So if you're thinking PLCs, you're thinking of the big three. So when I say the big three, I'm talking about uh, Schneider, Rockwell, and uh, Siemens. Not in that order. Okay. But that wasn't the only problem. Because PLCs had other issues. Because when you have a production line, this, this, you, you don't have everything all in one place. What you've got is you've got control stations around the plant. So let's say, you know, I keep coming back to cars and the main reason is because, well, you know, car plants are highly automated. 
And they're the ones that originally drove the adoption of PLCs in the first place. So anyhow, your spray booth is one of the last things you do. And there's a whole bunch of controls associated with that. But then you've got, let's say you've got the side panel door assemblies or you've got welding robots that are handling, you know, <clears throat> the the spot welds on, uh, on, on the trunk or, you know, whatever. All of that will have, there'll be different welding stations. There'll be different attachment points for like when they put the wheels on, when they're fitting out the in- interior and there'll be a big, long moving production line. So you can't really have one PLC in one location and economically run cables out, wires out to every single actuator and every single feedback device that you've got, every button and back to one massive box. So what they had to do was they had to, not just for that reason, of course, there's also back in the 60s and 70s, there were constraints with memory because, you know, memory was precious. So there was only so much, you know, code you could put in one of these things when it was just getting too expensive. So the PLCs had to be broken down and distributed. So you'd have one PLC in the spray booth, you'd have one PLC at a welding station and so on, and you'd break it down into multiple PLCs. And the next PLC would need to know a little bit about what the other one was doing. And hence, then we start with the uh, protocol wars. And the protocol wars in in PLCs were, were pretty vicious because everyone had their own way of doing it. It started out with serial and then it went on to, you know, packet-based data and essentially Ethernet, and everyone had to do it just a little bit differently, didn't they? But the most common standard that's still used today that was present in the earlier, not the first Modicon, of course, the 84, but in subsequent Modicons after that was, uh, again, lending from the name Modicon is called Modbus. So Modicon, Modicon Bus, so Modbus. And Modbus has become essentially the de facto standard if you have a device that has serial communication, then it should support Modbus because everything has the last 30 years. However, Siemens pushed their own Profibus, which is extremely very, very popular as well. And Alan Bradley pushed DF Plus, a few other different ones along the way. But there are a hell of a lot more than that. And thankfully, most of those wars are over now and they've settled on those big three. And again, not surprisingly, they're attached to the three big manufacturers. So Siemens pushed Profibus, uh, Schneider pushed Modbus and Alan Bradley pushed the latest iteration of you know, DF Plus or ControlNet or whatever. So that was a serial communications. And that was that was happening basically late 70s and into the 80s because you got to realize at that point that the internet didn't exist. Networking and Ethernet was not very common at all. And the whole DARPAnet thing and all that, that was all happening off in another world essentially, from automation. Ethernet really didn't start coming into products until the 90s, and even then, probably mid-90s for some of them. I think Siemens started to adopt it in the late 90s. Started as a separate add-on module, and then when you get to the probably about 2002, 2003, they started to incorporate it directly into every one of their CPUs. Like, now you get Ethernet now. It's like, yay, hallelujah. Much better. Okay, so... All the Ethernet uh, stuff, they, they came up with their own version of it. So you have Profinet for for Siemens and ControlNet for Alan Bradley stuff and and there's DeviceNet as well in there. And uh, Modbus, of course, uh, Schneider decided to go with Modbus TCP because, well, why should, what, you know, it's a brand. So, you know, let's just call it Modbus but with TCP, which is, of course, essentially, you know, the same thing but it works over a packet system. 
Okay. I think that's enough about comms and enough about PLCs because there's two other really important things that have happened in industrial automation. And then we'll start talking about the other niches of automation like building controls and, of course, home automation. Okay. So the next big thing to happen, as I was saying, the development of computers was happening at the same time. And that was good because it drove not only the programming software, but it also drove the monitoring software. So it's one thing to program a PLC to say, turn this on, turn that off, time delay here, blah, blah, blah. What you would love to do is you would love to have it all displayed on a computer screen and you could look at it from 100 meters away or 100 miles away and see what was open, what was closed, what was running and what was stopped. And of course, these things have faults. Well, bring the fault feedback into the PLC as well. Let's display that. I want to see if there's a fault on any of my lines. Because then what you can do is you can actually completely remove people from the from the environment. And you can say, right, you sit in the control room, you sit in front of this computer screen, and it'll show you the state of everything that's happening in the entire plant. And that has massive cost-saving benefits. Of course, the flip side of that is you're putting a lot of people out of work. But, you know, that's a, that's a moral discussion that, yeah, it's 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 worthy of discussion, and I don't mean to be dismiss it, and I don't I don't like to dismiss it because it bugs me a lot, but I just don't want to talk about this just today. So rain check on that discussion. Okay, so they came up with a obscure name for this stuff, which they always seem to do. Uh, it's called um, supervisory control and data acquisition, uh, and that stands for SCADA. So when people talk about SCADA systems, they're talking about software that's specifically designed to, to take data out of the PLCs and display it visually for someone to either observe or to interact with. Because what you could do is rather than having a physical push button now at the PLC having a memory, you could turn it into a virtual push button. So if I click on a button on the screen, it has the same effect now as physically pushing a start button for that device in the field. And that gives you not only monitoring, but control. And that's very, very powerful. So as computers have developed, that's gotten better and better and better. And it's it's just reached a point now where, where SCADA is immensely powerful. And SCADA did the same kind of thing that everything else had, which was there was a massive rush of people to the party. People that had PLCs felt that they had to develop their own SCADA to go with it. And industry standards weren't very, there just weren't very many. So... Siemens developed what they call WinCC and uh, Alan Bradley, or uh, they were developing RSView and Schneider developed Vigio. But there are other companies that developed uh, SCADIS packages that were designed specifically to be generic. And one of those is an Australian example of that was uh, Cytect. And Cytect is very, very popular because it originally supported over 100 PLCs. So if you wanted to talk to a Siemens PLC or a Schneider PLC, different PLCs that wouldn't ordinarily talk happily to each other, they would happily talk to the same SCADA system. So you could literally have a production line made of different PLCs and connect them up to one SCADA system and away you go. So that had its attractions as well. But to solve the problem, they came out with something called OLE for process control, object link, object linked, oh, I always forget what that stands for, object linked embedding, I think it's something like that. And uh, that's uh, I will leave for process controls short for OPC. And OPC is what everyone calls it. And OPC is essentially, uh, I'll give you an OPC driver for my PLC. And that means that any SCADA system that supports OPC can talk to it. 
So there was no longer a need for Cytecton to exist anymore and you could use whatever SCADA software you wanted as long as it was OPC compliant and you had an OPC driver, you could talk to whatever PLC you wanted. And that all happened in the uh, late 90s and in the 2000s. So hopefully you're still with us. We're almost there. And that is the DCS. Some people talk about SCADA PLC and then they talk about DCS. A DCS is different from a PLC and SCADA system. It was developed later in his, historically because what it is, it's, it's, a, it's a specifically designed integrated system. In other words, you have terminals and you have PLCs. The two are linked. You both modify the, the, the code of the DCS and you display the results on the DCS uh, as one integrated solution. And that has a whole bunch of advantages and it has a whole bunch of disadvantages. So rather than go into either or, I'm just going to leave it there. So, you know, what DCSs are, they're kind of like PLC plus SCADA. Okay. I talked a little bit about programming languages. Just wanted to cover the famous IEC 61131 standard. So the international standards body said, it kind of sucks how you've got all these PLCs with all these different programming languages. Sure, they still support ladder logic, but you know what? I can't just export code from one PLC into another. You know, I just, I can't do it. So what we want to do is we want to standardize the programming languages. So they came up with that standard with uh, 6.11.31. And it spells out what it should look like, how it should work. And then manufacturers would say, right, our code, you know, conforms with this. So yay. And it's, it specifies a whole bunch of different languages, not just ladder logic, something else called functional block diagram, structured text language. Uh, there's a few other different ones as well in there. And the whole point is standardization which has been really good for the industry. Well, no, that's not fair. It's been really good for the programmers. Right. <laughs> Whether or not Siemens are happy about it, I'm not so sure. You can tell just by the names of these these products that these, these companies are shipping that yeah. they're not too keen on giving up that kind of control. <laughs> uh, no, 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 definitely not. So, because there's no incentive for them to do it, you right. know? None at all, because what they want is they want you to say, right, well, you've got a Siemens PLC because, I mean, let's face it, Siemens PLCs are pretty great. However, I don't like their SCADA. Their SCADA WinCC, uh, yeah, it's passable, but, you know, I prefer to do something like Clear SCADA or, you know, Honeywell Experian or something like that, you know, whatever. Imagine if it didn't exist and you had no choice. You had to get WinCC, otherwise you couldn't talk to your Siemens PLC. That'd be that'd be terrible. Then they be can like, ship uh, you ten consultants, and yeah, yep, <laughs> right. You get the yep. You're getting it. That's the problem, right? So, okay. So we've talked about the history of automation, all the different booms and all the consolidations, the key players, the different kinds of equipment. One of the things that's become more prevalent lately is uh, the PLCs are now starting to, to support redundancy. So CPUs been, with power supplies being high failure rate items. So now a lot of the push in PLC land is for uh, redundant, system, redundant systems. And another one of the pushes uh, lately as well has been uh, safety systems. So the idea is that uh, you can't, it's, it's not possible, for example, to defeat uh, a series of interlocks if it's a protective device and if that doesn't make too much sense then well i probably shouldn't go into that actually but bottom line is that safety systems are now becoming a big thing as well 
And I guess at that point, I just want to push pause on industrial automation and start talking about where it's used. Because people don't realize this, that automation is used everywhere. However, what's happened is that certain niche markets have sort of evolved into specific use cases. So a specific use case that I can think of that's very common are railways. So railway control systems, they use, you know, PLCs, they use SCADA as well. But the the what they do is the way they display their information, some of the protocols that they use have been customized and in some ways I'd say refined a little bit, but they're more specific to railway signaling and switching points and all that sort of stuff because they measure things like uh, occupancy and on train lines and, and so on. So, you know, because when a train's sitting on train tracks, yeah, it's creating a conductive path between the two. You see a short between the two tracks, then you can tell if there's a track, pre- if there's a train present. And um, all that sort of stuff is subtly different and unique to the rail system. It's not something that you would find at a wastewater treatment plant or a water pipeline. However, uh, there's other examples like uh, heating and ventilation systems. So they have their own controllers and with all the thermostats feeding into the controllers to to uh, to drive the air conditioning system, the compressors and, and so on, chillers on larger systems and, and all that stuff. And another one is just is on buildings is building controls. So, you know, things like door locks, solenoid door locks, uh, fingerprint scanner access in, in and out of certain areas, motion detectors, uh, lift controls is another example of a control system that's very niche. And uh, one time I was having a look at the, um, at the top floor, <laughs> On the top floor usually, but not always, uh, the controllers for a building I used to work in. And I was fortunate that I came up when the lift guy from Schindler Lifts um, was there and he had the panel open. And of course, yeah, I just I couldn't help myself. So I shoved my head in there and I'm asking him a hundred questions. He's looking at me and I'm like, I'm sorry, <laughs> I'm an engineer. And he's like, oh, I should have guessed I was in a building full of engineers that someone was going to say something. I'm sorry, I'm sorry. <laughs> I just couldn't help it. You know, I'm drawn to the flashing lights. Anyway, uh, but yeah, I mean, it was it was a customized controller, but essentially he was programming it much the same way that you would program a PLC. It had software that was built for it, but a lot of the same concepts applied. It's just that it had been fine-tuned specifically for that application. So a lot of the PLCs that I've been talking about, they're essentially a generic PLC, a generic controller that you can apply to all sorts of scenarios to do digital control and analog controls. So PID controls can now be done in a digital PLC. You don't need an analog controller anymore. But it's also generic. So you could use a PLC to control a lift, but it's going to cost you more because it's not specialized for controlling that lift. So you're far better off using a customized controller for that lift, but it's still technically a control system. And now we get to home automation. Home automation is yet another example of a control system, but it has been essentially, I don't want to say dumbed down, but simplified in in its scope into what it is insofar as what it can do. And honestly, I've looked into this a little bit, but the thing that I've looked into the most that I'm happy to talk about is lighting controls. Not so long ago, and when I say not so long ago, I mean like maybe 10 years. It was the case where if you wanted to have controlled lights, you needed to... Hang on, I need to step back a second. 
a standard light switch is literally a physical toggle. You turn, flick it on and off. You know, you've got you got the slider type ones where you slide them up and down, and then you've got the the ones with the little knob that flicks out. And you literally flick it up, flick it down, and all it's doing is it's doing it's just switching from a, completing a circuit to breaking a circuit. It's pretty straightforward. But what you need if you want to control that is you need to go from a physical switch to a digital switch. And how a digital switch works is that they're the ones that are literally like a little push button. And they come in all sorts of different forms, but you know, a little push button about the same size as your standard light switch. And that digital push button will sometimes have a feedback uh, LED on it, like a blue, green, red, whatever color LED to tell you that it's on. Mind you, if you look up at the light, you notice the light's on. So, you know, you can figure out it's on. But anyway, <clears throat> so I just, I wonder about that. You know, it's like it's a bit superfluous, don't you think? It's the, it's the, 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 uh, the, the dream of a weather app that tells you if it's raining, right? Uh, yeah. Problem solved. <laughs> yeah, well, that's, yeah, shiv your head out the window. This is the thing, because I think uh, someone once made the argument to me when I was having this, uh, when I started on that little rant. And they said, well, okay, what if the light bulb's blown? I'm like, well, what are you going to do with a normal light switch? Forget it's digital. What are you going to do? You're going to turn the light switch on. Then you're going to turn it off. You're going to turn it on. You're going to turn it off. You're going to see, oh, hey, it's not, the light's not working. So why do I need a blue light on the front of my digital light switch to tell me if the light is on or not? I'm just going to do the same thing. Push button, push button, push button. Oop, I'm not getting light. It's busted. You know what I mean? It's just uh, anyway. It's, it's the features benefits thing. I'll, I'll say it looks futuristic and it looks cool, but yeah. it is pointless. You have a little bank of them. <clears throat> yeah, exactly. But that's another thing I hate about blue LEDs at nighttime, right? Because I I have a couple of hard drives with those blue LEDs right, to show when right. and they penetrate they they reflect around the the because I've got uh, uh, light colored walls. The light reflects around and, you know, I can sort of see a very faint blue glow coming from the study of the of a night time. So anyway, I haven't got digital lights in this house. I'd probably make sure I got ones that didn't have the indicator LEDs on them. Anyway, I'm digressing again. The point is that all these are, are they're a relay with a, with a latch in them such that when you push the button, it closes the relay, latches itself shut, and that closes a circuit that drives the light bulb. You want to push the button again, then a digital controller detects, oh, it's already on, therefore I'm going to open my circuit breaker and drop out the latch. Um, I said circuit breaker, drop out my relay, sorry, and open that latch. Light bulb turns off. So why the hell would you want to do that? And that's the reason you want to do it is because that opens up the possibility of automation. So I no longer have a physical switch turning it on and off. I have a digital switch that I can turn on and off via a relay. It doesn't have to be actuated by a button locally. It could be actuated by a button from the next room, you know, from essentially the equivalent of a SCADA system with a, with a PLC. So there's the two pieces. Once again, just like I said before, you've got the controller that does all of the pulling the strings, the puppet master, if you like, uh, if you're into analogies. And you've got all the actual actuating devices, whether they, that's a digital light switch, whether it's something that actuates and opens and closes the curtains or the blinds or the windows, uh, or whether it's inputs for motion detection to tell when you're in a room or presence detection when you're in a room, when you've left the room. All of these things can feed into a controller and it can decide what to go do with itself. 
So, about 10 years ago, circling back to that, the only way that was really available was you would have to run a separate set of cables to connect up all of these light switches onto a common communications bus. There were no wireless options. So, what you had was the same problem with geeks that want to wire their house full of Cat5 or Cat6, I guess, these days. So, Wi-Fi is awesome because that's what everyone likes to use, right? You put Wi-Fi in a room and you can use your, well, I guess back in the day it was laptops, but now it's everything. It's iPads, iPhones, and non-Apple products that have Wi-Fi, <laughs> whatever they may be. No judgment. But the point is that you can wander through the house freely. You don't have to jack into the wall. You don't, and the big reason is that's not a big deal if it's there. You know, I mean, okay, sure, I guess you've got cables and you could trip over cables and that's a pain in the neck, but you'll always get better transfer rates out of cable than you'll ever get out of Wi-Fi. You just, you will. The technology for wired is always going to be ahead of wireless. Right. And, yeah, and wireless is a fixed resource, which means once it's gone, it's gone. Once you've used it, you can't use it anymore. You're stuffed. Whereas with a cable, you know, you just add another cable. The signal's contained within the cable. You add 10 cables, you can have 10 times the bandwidth. Eventually, you run out of bandwidth on Wi-Fi. So, there's, there's always a limit. Anyway, so people didn't wire their houses with Cat5 because it's a pain in the neck. You know, there's a lot of cabling to do and you've got to have, you know, a, a, an Ethernet switch connecting it all together to make it work. Well, the, the thing is that these light switches are the same problem. So you had to run not only power cables to these things, but you had to run a second bus around the house that didn't follow the power circuits, that followed the actual light switches. And the most common standard bus that they went for is uh, C bus, as in letter C, C bus, as opposed to a bus on the ocean, which the C bus that uh, they have in Vancouver, that I guess that was confusing because I, <laughs> I was aware of C bus and I went to Vancouver for a, you know, on a holiday once and I'm like, oh, it's a C bus. Engineer giggle. <laughs> oh, right. I was the only one that got that joke, so we moved on. But anyway, so, um, okay. The, control the controller itself had much simpler programming software, but the idea is simple. You can say, well, a light should not stay on for more than, I don't know, 10 minutes. I don't know. If you've got motion detections or presence detections in the house, some of the more advanced controllers can say, if no one is in that room for more than five minutes, turn the light off. Or if someone walks into a room, turn the lights on immediately. Yeah, e even more fancy systems you can have. Yeah, you know, th th they'll detect the light level automatically. Of course, people these days are more interested in the cool remote access stuff. So if you wire up your home house for home automation, and you've got a lot of these sensors, they don't. It's not so much about the automating of it; it's just the remote control of it. Right. So you can say, oh. I've got my iPhone and I'm going to go and turn the lights off in the kitchen. Right. Tap. And it's like, oh, that's the coolest thing ever. I mean, practically speaking, who cares? But hey, it's so damn cool. Right. You think about like the, ne next, ne the Nest thermostat and what, you know, what's yeah. really cool about it is that it, it, you know, it's the thermostat that learns, right? That's the, that's the pitch. But you know that, gosh, what everyone, you know, everyone really loves about it is that they have an app for it. Oh, absolutely. And Even if I they never think, use it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But you see that it's what, what I find fascinating is that home automation has been around for quite a while now. It's been around for at least two decades. Yeah, I think like all the old X11 stuff. 
right? Was that the company? Yeah. I mean, I remember a yeah. buddy of mine had that, and he, he's like, check it out. I can, you know, I can. Yeah. <laughs> we can use our Kia Sera 6235s to control the lights, and it worked. Yep. That's right. But there were two problems, and one was all the extra wiring you had to do because it was fully wired controllers. Right. It wasn't wireless. And that added a lot of expense because it was usually retrofitted into houses, which is a massive pain in the neck. But it's not just that. It was also that the controllers were simply – there weren't enough of them, and, and therefore they were very expensive, and it was still a very niche market. The thing is, today, it hasn't changed a hell of a lot. It is still a very niche market, but the difference is that more people are doing it because now they've gone wireless. So there are now wireless equivalents of the CBUS standard, and there's a whole bunch of different ones. And what, it, what effectively you can do now is you can circumvent the wiring problem. And it's at the point where you still need to be an electrician to go and plug these things into the to the actual switch on the faceplate on the wall. Yeah, that that's that's still a barrier to entry. So what's happening now is there's an even more interesting twist to the story, whereby they're building in the controller into the light bulb. So instead of having a switch you turn on and off on the wall that you can access on and off remotely or through some kind of control. If someone leaves the room, it turns off after five minutes or whatever it is. Instead of that, now you can remotely control them through the light bulb. And all you got to do is screw the light bulb in. It gets power from the uh, from when the light bulb's on. You always leave the light switch on at the wall. I mean, like at the, at the face plate, it's always switched on. And then you can control it through an app on your phone, through the local Wi-Fi. And uh, our um, mutual friend, um, James Smith. Right. Yeah. Working for uh, uh, LIFX, I think it is, isn't it? Yeah, that's it. Yeah. And He's uh, got the, the light bulb that, oh, it's, I mean, it's rated for, I don't know, I mean, years and years and years, very long life, right? And uh, yeah. And yeah, you just, uh, you plug it in and, or you screw it into the, the, the light and, and that's it. You can control yeah. it from, from anywhere. You can. It's pretty neat. They've got their uh, it's color control too, so you kind of have right. this this new dimension to play with. I mean, and that's that that's to me that's that's really interesting. I didn't see it coming, and I mean, this is just one example. There are dozens of others, but theirs has got all these other things you just mentioned. And this is not an ad- advertisement for them, but you know, by all means, check it out. It is kind of cool. Um, what I mean to say is that the idea of you know what? How do we make this more accessible? How do we get this out to more people? Because home automation should be a given. It should be up there with if you live in a warm climate, you get a solar hot water system. If you live in a warm climate with gets a lot of sun, you get you know solar hot water and solar solar panels. It should just be everyone gets home automation built in when they build a new house. It shouldn't be a massive expense. But it just wasn't happening. Because it was a little bit too expensive and it was just too much of a luxury thing. So how do you bypass that? Well, you, you take the electrician out of the equation. You don't need to run wires through the walls. You don't need to get an electrician to swap out the faceplate anymore. You can just buy a special light bulb or an adapter for an existing light bulb. And hey, presto, it'll power itself. You simply leave the switch on and then you can remotely control it through wireless means. And, and that's where everything seems to be going. And you can get exactly the same sort of adapters, not just for light bulbs, but also for standard what they call a general purpose outlet or a, gen- or a general purpose socket uh, socket outlet. There's all sorts of different names for it, I guess, but uh, in Australia, that's what we call them. But that that's the uh, the three-pin power point in the wall, mm-hmm. right? 
So now you can control an individual electronic device, whatever it may be. And I mean, up to a point, because, you know, what's the good of that on a TV set? Because TV sets these days have got a, a, an auxiliary circuit that waits for someone to push a button. So it's sitting there idling, consuming electricity all the time, waiting for someone to come on and push the on button or push the magic uh, button on the remote control, the infrared remote control, to start the TV up. So what good is a remote control on that? You can turn it off, but you couldn't turn it back on again. And what's the point of remotely turning on a television anyway? It's not like it takes time to warm up anymore. It's not like it was back in the 50s where you had valves in the back of your TV set and you know, the, you know, you'd turn it on and you'd wait five minutes for it to warm up before it would show a picture. Right, now you just wait five minutes for the uh, cable box to figure out what the hell it's doing. <laughs> yeah, that's true. That's true. So, yeah, I find um, home automation is going to take off more and more. But it's the thing is, I don't understand so much the attraction of the remote access. It's more of the automation side of it that's useful. So, I went through this thing and I, I just getting... Uh, on the on the uh, getting close to wrapping up is the the situation I looked into it in was a a cost cost trade off with my kids. It may or may not make sense, but kids tend to be a little forgetful of things, and light is one of them. So, for example, it becomes a drill. Whenever we leave the house now, that I walk through all their bedrooms, turn off their light. We're in the middle of summer, turn off their fans as well. So our whole, our whole house is in air conditioned. We just have fans in the rooms. So I go around the house and do all that. Would it not be lovely to be able to push a button and say, shut down the house and just turn off all the lights, all the fans, or go to a I'm out mode where you've got a key light turned on? Because, you know, some people like to say, oh, you should always leave a light on. Yeah, you know, so it looks like your home, so burglars will be confused, right? <laughs> right. Yeah, like that works. But, you know, maybe it does, maybe it doesn't. I don't know. I'd, I doubt that as well. But never mind. Let, let's just run with that. Sure. Leave a light on. Either way, you've got like a I'm away from home mode. Wouldn't that be awesome? But you see, that's not the angle that makes sense exactly. I mean, that's a convenience thing. But what makes sense is money in terms of money for electricity. So well, the way I looked at it was how much would I have to spend on an automation system to reduce the amount of electricity wasted by lights being left on unnecessarily. Obviously, you've got to make a whole bunch of assumptions, but it's really not as hard as you might think because if you have a system that's set up such that you have a motion sensor in a room, someone leaves the room, no one's in the room for two minutes or one minute or 30 seconds even, you know, turn the damn light off. Yeah, what, what do you need it for? If you're sitting in the, in front of the TV set, maybe you, you don't want the light on anyway. If you're sitting quietly in a, in the study and you're not moving a hell of a lot, you know, I guess it comes down to the sensitivity of the of the motion sensor, the presence detector. But the bottom line is that it should be possible to put that together. And if you can figure out uh, an estimate of how much electricity is wasted, well, I did the math on this place. And the usage patterns that I witnessed with my kids and um, I basically came to the conclusion the payback period was about 11 years. But that's still worth considering. So I guess what I mean to say by that is that 
the cost up front it would cost me to retrofit all of these home automation devices to and do the programming. Well, okay, I didn't cost my own time to do the programming, but never mind that. That's okay. I'll, I'll, I'll work for free if it's my own family. But, um, you know, all of that is going to end up costing me uh, a fair bit of money and I'm not going to see benefit until 11 years have passed. So that's the sort of investment that is a harder sell. Putting solar panels on the roof in the payback period was significantly less than that, and it was a bigger payback afterwards. That was worth doing. But your use case may vary. But that's just that was my experience. And it's an angle that some people don't consider, and I think it's worth people considering with with, with home automation. Well, I, you know, t- talking about this made me think of um of um flux the uh little app that you got it for for mac and i'm sure for pc too and i think even some uh, like if you jailbreak your iphone i think you can put it on there too and it it's uh it's a little thing that that warms up or warms down your your screen's color balance as you you know as as uh as the day progresses so you're not looking at this uh you know super bright i don't know what 63 100k uh screen at at 12 o'clock at night um you know but you know and and the idea with it is is that you just you probably shouldn't be doing that right you probably shouldn't be looking at things that are are as bright as the the midday sun when you're about to go to sleep and it's you know you've got so you've got your cost you've got kind of these your, your your all or nothing sort of approach right where you walk out of the room and 20 seconds later the lights flick off but you also i mean it enables these kind of these these gradual things too where you can you know and maybe flux doesn't matter maybe it's you know i'm not sure it's completely clear that the science is there but i I, you know when i came down this morning to do the uh to do the show the screensaver is running on my mac you know and and that's probably just because i have it set so it doesn't turn on right away and i probably just have something set wrong but I'm thinking, you know, I've, it's got a little camera there. It knows when it's being used. Why Why do I even have to bother with this at all, right? Like, yeah, you should run the screensaver for a little bit, but after seven hours, I've been asleep, and you know what time it is, and presumably this machine can also keep track. I mean, obviously it can. Know, know when I'm likely to be using it, that there's no good reason that that was still on. And granted, there's very little power that's drawing out of that, but it's there. I mean, it's something, and it's not great you know so the more kind of smarts we get into everything we can we can start enabling these sort of of little you know personal customizations right that i mean you talk talking about with kids you know not not turning the lights on and off uh i mean what you're also doing there in, in addition to the cost is you're you're sidestepping the social cost right of having to deal with that, having to be the dad that's always yelling at him to turn off the lights, right? Yeah, that's right. And and it's hard to put a number on that, but it's there. I mean, there, there's some aspect to that where it's it's a problem that we don't have to have anymore. Yeah. See, the thing is, when I did that costing, I, I, I sort of, I made an offhand comment, I'll program it because, you know, on my own time, I'm, you know, with my family, I'm happy to work for free for my family. But that sort of hides the other little sub-issue that you just hit on, which is putting a time, putting a cost on that that the the fact that I don't I know I would no longer have to wander around the house to do that. 
So that wandering around the house, let's say I, I leave the house with the kids once a day, which you know is, is really not that unrealistic. In some cases, you come and go from the house multiple times per day, uh, depending on you know kids' sports, birthday parties, um, you know family outings, events, school. Yeah, it adds up more than you'd think. And so now it takes me to wander around, turn all the lights off in the house and everything. Let's say that exercise takes me two minutes. Well, actually, let's say it takes three minutes. So you do that just once a day, you know, seven days a week. That's 21 minutes of your of your time over a year. That's going to add up to many hours of your time. Right. So, and one of the things that I often sort of think about is there's only there's only so much life that each of us has and i don't want it to go all i don't know fluffy but it's i'm not meaning to be it's if you want to put a cost on every hour that you spend and say i want to do something that is going to generate revenue and i'm i, I don't say that that should be the point of life but let's just say that for art for the argument's sake that you want to look at it that way you could say well i could spend those hours and hours of my life doing something that's going to earn me money, that's going to earn me like developing a website that makes money or writing code, writing software that's going to make me money. Or honestly, if you want to take the money away from it, just something you'd rather be doing. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, it, and- it works better if you think about different currencies, right? That, that there's the yes, there's the social currency inside your family or with your friends or and then you're, there's your own. You know, uh, what I just said this morning, I woke up and I said, why is the screensaver on? Right. And it was just a little thing, you know, but it adds up. And all those those experiences over a lifetime end up being some pretty big numbers. Um, yes. And, you know, you have exactly. to decide how you want to count that or if you even care. And and it does kind of, you know, the flip side of it is is there's the, you know, maybe it's like the the Protestant work ethic of, of like, well, you, you should be suffering, right? You should, you should take the time to march through your house and do it. And, and that's, that can be, I mean, there, there's, there's some value to that, right? That it's, you know, it builds character that, you know, thinking about things and being thoughtful and remembering is, is good for you, but there's lots of ways you can do that. And that, that kind of like, it's, it's kind of an insidious mindset sometimes to, to think that it, there's somehow value in, in repeating yourself, right? That, that yeah. you 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 know it's in uh, there's the the programming uh, uh, idea you know of keeping it dry you know don't repeat yourself if you've written a if you've written a, a little piece of code more than twice it's time to encapsulate it and pull it out and and have it do its own thing so you don't have to you don't have to bear that cognitive load again and again and again and again um, and. Yep. It, it's worth exploring. You know, the, the answers might not always be the same. And a lot of times you're going to say, ah, you know, it's fine. But yeah. it, you don't want to ignore it either. Yeah, I find that's an interesting argument because what what someone will say is, uh, like you say, oh, it builds character. Man, I've heard that too many times in my life from other people. You know, honestly, it, it's it's a simple choice. Is there a better way or isn't there? Right. If there isn't, you're stuck with it. As soon as there's a better way, you have a choice. And once you've got a choice, you can choose to either work. Uh, there's another one of those ex- sayings. I'm about to spit it out. So here it comes, which is work smarter, not harder. Right. <laughs> and I say that with a certain tiresomeness in my voice because, God, I've also heard that so many times. Anyway, but, you know, the 
irrespective of how worn out that expression is, it does have a good kernel of truth to it, which is you should be looking for better ways of doing things. Because if you don't look for better ways of doing things or ways of saving time that you could put towards other endeavors, whether they are to make money or not, freeing up your own personal time, different currencies, as you were saying, yeah, that's worth exploring. Accepting everything that we have and saying, you know, light switch works fine and go, yep, I've got that plenty of times. Um, actually, most recently from my wife, when I proposed this, uh, oh, it's got 11 year payback and light switch works fine. Okay. Anyway, um, <laughs> I'm working on it. The point is that you should be looking for better ways because life is short. There is only a certain amount of time. And I think that if you can do something, use technology to enhance uh, that aspect of your life and reduce your dependence on menial tasks, then surely that's got to be a better net result in the end. Right. And well, and there's the, the other thing that goes along with that is when you, it's just, it's, human nature a little bit that when something is it's like doing the dishes right i mean everyone knows the the smartest way to do the dishes is, is as soon as you're done as soon as you're done eating is to clean them off and get them in there so you don't have this you know pile of dishes piling up um but when something's a chore or when something has you know you're not you're not getting any real immediate gratification or or you know, pleasure out of doing it, there's a good chance you're just going to let it slide. So, it, you know, so if, if your, your option isn't to, it isn't just, we're going to automate our lighting and we have, uh, you know, two choices is to either do it or to not do it. You have three choices. It's to, you can automate your lighting or you cannot automate your lighting and manually go and make sure that you're turning everything off, or you cannot automate your lighting and just leave the lights running all the time. And, if you, you know, if you think really honestly about your behavior and, and, you know, your kid's behavior and your, your family and friends and, and how we all act as humans, a lot of the time we're just going to leave the lights running and not even think about it. Well, that's a way worse outcome than automating it. So you have to think about how, you know, how you behave when you're thinking about something rationally and, and being, being smart about it versus, you know, we're all dumb most of the time. And, we, you know, it's, it's making the smart you be really friendly to the dumb you. Uh, <laughs> it's an interesting way of looking at it. I, I think the whole thing with home automation and what it can do to reduce some of the pressure on your, on your life in different ways, the way I looked at it is I need to see a cost saving of either in money or in time. And in, in, in this case, it ends up being both, which is a win-win. And if I do spend the extra money, what's the payback period? I feel like there's a there's sort of a pervasive uh, belief amongst people with home automation, and they say, "Oh, home automation's wonderful. It's this. It's that. I can do. I can turn off the light bulb even when I'm on holidays in another country, and isn't that awesome?" And everyone sort of seems to look at that and say, "Well, that's nice, but I mean, that's what's the point of that? That doesn't." Yeah, what, what value does that really give you? And I think that the, the people that are in that situation are looking at it wrong. They're looking at it from the point of view of just because I can do something from the next room, that's not the power of the system. The power of the system is in the automation side of it, not the remote control of it. And 
that's the automation is what will save you the time and it will save you the money. And that's, I think, the angle that people need to consider it from. And I just don't see enough people doing that. And it is out there. It is becoming cheaper. And I strongly encourage people to start looking into that. Do you want to uh, wrap it up? Yep. We could do that. So if you want to talk more about this, you can find John on Twitter at John Chigi. That's J-O-H-N-C-H-I-D-G-E-Y. It's the same on app.net. If you'd like to send an email, you can send it to John at techdistortion.com. I'm Ben Alexander, and you can reach me on Twitter at FiatLuxFM, or you can see show announcements and related materials by following the show account at Pragmatic Show. Thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks, John. Thank you.